0: Welcome to the Conversations with Henrietta Galina and Jason Campbell. Hello Henrietta.
1: Hi Jason.
0: Uh, this week we have a guest and our guest this week is Leandra Medine Cohen of the lifestyle website Manrepeller. Hello Leandra.
1: Greetings. Hi Leandra, how are you doing?
2: I'm okay. How are you both?
0: Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I didn't mean to leave it aside. That sounded really quite a, like, down-tempo there. No, Leandra, it's a Friday, and um, at the end of summer, I feel great. I'm enjoying these last few days of summer. I don't even want to think beyond this time, and things are wonderful. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> yes, Isn't I it wild
2: how... Saying that you're great actually makes you feel great, or I don't know if that's the case for you, but, you know, sometimes I'm feeling like the haters inside my head are, like, out, and they're being really loud and really mean to me, and then someone asks how I'm doing, and I say I'm great, and I almost start, like, tearing up because I'm like, oh all i have to do to be great is just tell myself that i am it, yeah it has that
1: kind of smile and the world will smile with you vibe to it sometimes yeah. though i just feel like a fraud when i say that and yeah. Yeah. yeah
2: i guess it depends on how how deep I, yeah it depends well, on like how far into the the loop of yeah
0: <laughs> and just just as absolutely Andrea, and you're actually the perfect person to say this too is think about it the same thing applies for me with my outfit selection you know Mm -hmm. if i want to project if i want to project a certain energy to the world and in fact i employ this all the time i want to 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 broadcast a certain energy to the world i put on a certain outfit colors are used heavily in that arsenal and um yeah that's a really really powerful tool and i'm putting that smile on and it becomes real and to your point henrietta no i don't actually feel like an imposter and a fraud when i do that I think it actually works, you know, smile and the world will smile with you. So, yeah, that is a tool I, I, I live by.
1: To be fair, I wear black all the time, so I wouldn't know of this experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but
2: Henrietta, I kind of get what you're saying, because when you're um, when you're having a hard time accessing honesty within yourself anyway, to say you're great just further perpetuates that lack of honesty. And sometimes you kind of just
1: need to sit with the pain, you know? I think that that is a lot of it. And I think that it really is in those rare moments. So it's not a general sentiment, but generally, I think saying you feel great is helpful. So, yeah. I love this deep and meaningful chat from this one (laughs) usually uh, rhetoric question. Um, So I love it. Oh, God. I've been reading,
2: I, I think I've been reading too many books about like personal growth.
1: But this is what we want to talk to you about. So this is actually a perfect segue. Okay, let's get into it. <laughs> so we're excited to talk to you, actually, to dig into a few themes that Jason and I have been talking about a lot personally and on this platform, which is introspection. Um, mm-hmm. I personally believe, and I know Jason shares a lot of this sentiment, that you know, as it pertains to the racial fallout in fashion, in terms of the I guess, responsibility of our white counterparts in the industry. I feel really strongly that introspection is a large part of this because, you know, how we got here really needs to be examined and everyone's role needs to be thought about beyond these kind of marketing terms and statements. We really need to think about what we're doing on more of a psychological and individual level. Like when we talk about accountability and personal responsibility That introspection, going in, digging deep and figuring out where we went wrong or what we did, how we contributed and how we can move forward in a much more meaningful way, I think is a lot of the work. And so with the fallout that happened in fashion, there were a few people that abdicated their roles, their current roles within their businesses. You were one of them, mm-hmm. or, or shall I say more accurately, you stepped back because of a few issues that came to light. And then you recently last week uh, came back and you presented a really sort of engaging news letter to explain the machinations of what happened and and how you decided to make the decision to come back. So we really wanted to talk to you as one of the first sort of business leaders and person behind a brand to have stepped back and actually come back and address it head on. We really wanted to then talk to you about this idea of introspection and what that looks like and what goes into it and hopefully how we can move forward in a much more meaningful way based Mm -hmm. on said introspection so in a really long nutshell that's probably it so I wanted to start I guess with what did that journey look like for you if you can get into how you stepped away
0: exactly I think that's really important to sort of lay the playing field if you will, uh, really what happened that brought you to this point with your company and with you personally
2: yeah well, you know, technically speaking, the succession of events that occurred were as follows: three members of my team were laid off at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, one of one of these women was a black woman, and after George Floyd was murdered in late May, and the racial reckoning really started to impact effectively anyone who was living online, and frankly, everyone is living online right now because we're still in the throes of a pandemic. We issued a statement standing against racial injustice, and it was met with some very sobering and critical feedback from former employees of Man Repeller, although that's not actually the right um, succession of how it happened. Initially, there was a lot of feedback from the employee who'd been laid off's uh, community, which was curiously heartwarming to be on the other side of, even though it was feedback that was uh, directed towards me and pretty painful to hear. It was also incredible just to see the way in which her people rose for her. Um, And I, I was able to see that even back then and think like, you know, this is this is what having a generous spirit gives you. But following that, following that feedback and that criticism, several former employees and anonymous, or anonymous former employees and anonymous interns started to reach out. And we had an all hands meeting within the company. And there was some, um, there was a very cathartic conversation that took place. And, yeah. So, so following, following all of, all of these events, I, I, I thought to myself, oh, this is, this is way, way bigger than just me in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I said it in that first letter. And if I didn't, then. Uh, no, I, I did. I definitely said it in the first letter. Is like to to really understand why this is what led me to step back. It it would be really helpful to have context on the relationship that I have with my company, because I started this thing as a personal blog when I was twenty years old. I didn't think it was going to turn into anything in my head. I've always perceived myself to be an entertainer, uh, really interested in fashion, quite spiritual and and intellectual and analytical about my relationship with fashion, but also not critical. And through through building man repeller and receiving so much affirmation and validation and, and feeling so empowered and and, uh, building all this confidence through the platform, I really started to like depend on it to complete me and be my whole. And it's, it's a business. It's not a person. It's not me. You know, like that sense of completion and wholeness is really something that I needed to give myself. And I didn't realize it back then. And I didn't know what to do with that. Um, and so I kept depending on man repeller to complete me, to make me whole. And every time it didn't do that, it, it, disappointed me tremendously and that necessarily had an impact on the culture at the company and you know with the employees at the company and um so it that it's not a nutshell technically what happened is we laid off three employees at the beginning of the pandemic one of them was a black woman and so when we stood against racial injustice that was met with a lot of criticism on the hypocrisy of standing against racial injustice when you know we're laying people off And then internally, the reason it it really led to my step down is because it, I'm, I have no, or it's very easy for me to like go really, really far and deep and identify what the, how, how can I actually say this? Because I was thinking about it this morning i i'm I'm pretty fearless in my mind, like I will take my mind to to the the furthest boundaries possible and try concepts, notions, theories on for size whether or not I actually believe them you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and i guess as as part of this or or part of that is terrible because sometimes I delude myself into believing that I am a way I'm not, or a situation is a way it's not, but often it's also really helpful because it facilitates a level of honesty with myself. Um, and so when this whole thing started happening and, and I was thinking about it and analyzing it and looking at the, the, the succession of events that have occurred over the last four months, but also 10 years, I was like, I, I really need to give this team a chance to let Man Repeller be what I promised it was going to be. And I need to step back as a result. And I need to figure out what I want and who I am and what my role in the broader world, but also in my own life, in my own body is. Mm -hmm.
1: And that's really interesting, actually, because all the lens through which we wanted to speak to you is as a business leader and someone who fronts a brand and actually not as an influencer, because Mm -hmm. it was really about the responsibilities as it pertains to the wider industry. So it's interesting actually, when you talk about that distinction and how interchangeable they are and at what points you realized it was about you or it wasn't about you or which, you know, at which points you centered yourself or realized it it should stand alone as a business. Yeah.
0: Leandra, let me put your sort of personal identity aside just for Mm -hmm. a second and ask you about um, Man Repeller and where it stood in the culture. Were you aware of what Man Repeller stood for in, in the culture? Uh, you, you mentioned that you started it at 20 years old and it seemed to have just like grown over the years. You were, you know, you were really wrapped up into it, but at some time it seemed like it grew beyond your personal identity. Were you aware of that and it's, and it's, and it's true influence in the culture? Or were you just struck by the time after the controversy, uh, started?
2: You know, if you had asked me this question six months ago, I would say, of course, I was aware of the influence of the platform. But when I think about it critically, and honestly, now I I really wasn't, you know, and and I think that's part of the reason I was so um, eager to and frankly, willing to step down is I was like, what kind of leader doesn't understand that they're in a position of power, you know, and 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 I felt like that required a tremendous amount of thinking on my part. Mm. Um, so no, I, I I don't think I truly understood the magnitude of, of what man repeller meant in the culture because, because I was centering the experience on myself to such a degree that I could not see outside of it. Mm. Um, the trouble with, mm, what am I trying to say? I mean, I guess I, I just have so many jumbled thoughts in my mind because now that I'm posting again on social media to a degree and, and like very slowly reentering the, uh, very slowly reentering the world of man repeller,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I'm realizing that, you know, Instagram provides this tremendously false promise to all of its users, because you go on there looking to connect and you think you are going to connect when in effect, what the platform is, is like a very shallow and surface level um, depiction or portrait of another person's life. And I think that if you are able to experience Instagram through the lens of pure entertainment and, and you don't get disappointed and upset when you see that the entertainers in your feed are not also like they're not bringing their whole selves to the platform um Mm. it can be a very different experience but there there's this there's this and it also by the way perpetuates a tremendous amount of further self-centeredness and narcissism right 100
1: percent yeah
2: um and and I Yeah, I guess I'm literally working through this stuff in real time right now. But I'm thinking to myself that perhaps if I had not, um, if I had not felt so validated by my presence on social media, I would have been able. It would have been much easier for me to identify the fact that I was centering myself to a degree that was not productive for my business at all.
0: Mm. Right, that would call for the you know an ongoing introspection into uh, I, the, the entire way along, which I'm not sure would be a, a realistic ask. But I'm I want to keep with the the lens sort of panned out a little bit and ask mm-hmm. about you know the culture. You weren't just a woman existing in a silo and producing this content for this audience. You were a part of a you're a part of an industry and a part of a system, and mm. I, I can't help to think that that system helped to define your output, it helped to define how you felt about yourself, and helped to define what you thought about the community. So I wanted to gather, get a a better sense of how you felt you existed in the the greater fashion industry, and what that may have perpetuated. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a big question, but I I find that um, to contextualize sort of where you are, I mean some of the criticism that came your way had to do with exclusivity and, yes. and elitism, elitism let's say. And, but in many ways, that's, that's what fashion is, is largely about. Fashion is, is highly exclusive, it's highly elitist. And also classist, which is some of the criticism that came your way. And, and it's not about assigning blame or anything of that kind, but understanding the ecosystem that you existed in from your vantage. Uh, maybe you could weigh in on that for me
2: yeah well you know when I think about why I started man repeller it was because I wanted to write about trends that women love and men hate but I wanted to do it through the lens of um, like like high spirit you know I, I I didn't want to be cynical or critical about it I, I so desperately wanted to be part of fashion um, I, I was never doing this to to separate myself or to you know point a middle finger at the industry I really wanted to contribute to it and participate in it. And I wonder if perhaps a lot of the criticism about elitism and classism was a function of the promise that Man Repeller was a different kind of fashion brand, when increasingly over the course of probably particularly the last couple of years, it was becoming more and more like a mainstream fashion property, or at least the person who was running it, me, was becoming more and more like a mainstream fashion personality and I say that specifically because I, I definitely felt a a sort of shift in the last like two or three years and I thought that it was internal but this is probably just like me centering my experience again but I'm realizing now that I, I think I started to feel more accepted and like I fit in among the fashion community in the last two or three years and I'm saying that specifically because the first time I went to Paris and like had plans and didn't feel super lonely and miserable was about two or three years ago. Um I used to go and and come back and be like, "Oh my god, that place is the worst. It's a nightmare to be there." And I and I go because I love I love the clothes and I love being in the city and I love being immersed in uh French culture, but um yeah, I guess I'm wondering if if perhaps if perhaps it started to feel that way, more elitist and more classist, because for the first time I, a self-identified misfit, actually fit in, or felt that I did.
1: That's so interesting that that was your experience before the last sort of two or three years, actually. That's really surprising.
2: Well, I'm a lone wolf, you know? So I'd go by myself. I'd like stay in whatever hotel was cheap enough to like, you know, not cost me an arm and a leg every night. And I, I like, I didn't have a car. I was running around. I, I, it it was very lonely, you mm-hmm. know?
1: I just meant more from the, from the macro idea of if someone who, you know, looks like you and moves through the world, like you felt excluded, it's telling on the, the fashion system in and of itself because, you know, from my vantage point, we're led to believe that the system is set up for people who are like you, you know. So I, I just think that that's an
0: interesting dichotomy just there. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you say that, Henrietta, because I actually think, um, based on what Leandra just said, she represents very much the fashion community. I think a lot of, um, a lot of fashion people have been outsiders, were outsiders in growing up, and, um, you know, they've, they they share a love of fashion, and, and as they grow up, they embrace this industry, or they've been embraced in this industry, and that's where they find their tribe. But in turn, I find also that tribe becomes sort of, you know, this is no offense, Aliandra, but um, in turn become the mean girls. You know, And I've always, I've always wondered I'm just like, well, wait a minute Just because we get to have a say And influence in how people Dress and look and so forth I never understood why fashion Took on, you know t- Started wearing this coat of meanness Simply because of their influence So I think fashion happens to be populated With a lot of outsiders That became the ultimate insiders And with that, I don't think that there's always A great sense of security I think that they oftentimes take that insecurity with them throughout their career, and that um, in turn comes out in different ways, and not always the best ways. Not to, this is not this is not a diagnostic on you, <laughs> Leandro, but this is from my 25, 30 years in this industry and observing the kind of people that populate it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I say that I, I I would agree with that fairly implicitly that there's a level of self consciousness that permeates the industry that that to your point, Henrietta, the the industry is sort of an and I, it feels funny talking about people I don't even actually know, but you know the way that I perceive the industry or the way that I have perceived the industry has always been like here are all these people who weren't able to express themselves have finally found a a a way to be part of something that's bigger than them and also like deeply aligned with their interests. And they felt like misfits and they were longing for fit and they come in and now, and now they fit in and they don't know how to be because oh. what, what made them feel like misfits was being alienated by the other, by the people around them. You know, it was like that feeling of being ostracized. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Audrey Lord's quote. Now you can't, Uh, dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. But, but if you don't, if you don't know, if you don't know how else to be, you know, that self-consciousness comes with you and stay with me for a second, because I'm about to take this over to my kids, but you know, I was with my daughter this morning and I realized that when she's trying to do something, she gets really, really fussy at first, you know, like, like she really gets in her own way. She wanted to climb up, um, a a set of stairs and she couldn't get up like the last two stairs and she'd been doing a great job. And all of a sudden she started like psyching herself out and was like ready to throw herself back. And she's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I'm thinking like, Oh my God, this is totally a quality that you've developed for me because I do the same thing. Like I totally panic. I freak myself out. And then, once I just put my head down and do the thing, I feel so much more confident and happy and like proud of myself for having gotten it done. But I'm I'm like, how do I, how do I help? How do I help her with this behavior? How do I guide her in the right way when like I myself still do it and don't know how to, I don't know how to like heal that behavior in myself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Are you absolutely. like, are you catching I, the
1: correlation? I totally get it. I think one of the things that you touched on just because I want to bring this back round to this yeah. introspection point, which I think you touched on really nicely, was this idea of real time. You're working through this in real time. Mm-hmm. And that's a quality that I have admired in you, actually, because I remember a couple of years ago reading a piece that you wrote, Pregnant Pause," where you were talking about your struggles with infertility. And it was a really honest It was a really honest piece. You you rarely read pieces that come from such a place of honesty in real time and talk about this idea, which I really fully agree with, which is that we don't normally talk about things in real time. You know, We always fast forward to the point where you have the baby or you got through to the other end or you're living your best life and you don't really talk about the struggles as they happen in real time, which is usually where a lot of the learning and fostering that... Real resilience and solution can come from. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really allowed for a level of trust and insight into who you are and and how you operate. And so I think that the difference in seeing how you handled the racial fallout by essentially stepping away and removing yourself from the discourse, only to return a couple months later with your newsletter, some could argue is you exercising that privilege that is an inherent part Mm -hmm. of this problem. How Mm -hmm. would you speak to that criticism? Because that is something that I personally was really surprised by when you chose to walk away and go silent, when you're usually very vocal about challenges in real time.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I'm being very honest, I had nothing meaningful to contribute to the conversation. I felt so out of my depth because I had been avoiding a confrontation without even realizing that I was avoiding it. It, it was it was unconscious and and like total. I was yes dripping in my white privilege. You know what I mean? And I I didn't. I could not rise. I could not rise for what the moment was asking for. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly as simple as that. Mm. Um, And and by the way, I'm still, I am still inside of this. Like I am still very much trying to figure out what comes next. I have no idea. You know, this is like, you know, you mentioned a pregnant pause. I feel like I just announced that I'm trying to get pregnant, you know, this isn't like I'm back and the babies are here and here's what happened. It's I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this publicly and I'm sure that it's going to be painful, but I don't know another way because I'm such an external processor and I so value the contribution of, uh, feedback. And that's not to say that I take it all and listen to it all, but it's such a tremendous, um, I guess that I don't, I don't, I don't know how to finish this sentence, but yeah, you know, it's the external processing is really important for me because it helps me discover while I'm going through something. I think where I'm netting out right now is that because I'm coming into a, a far greater understanding of the size of my platform and the extent to which people look to me for guidance, um, my relationship with outward sharing might actually need to change.
0: Well, what I'm observing is, in speaking to you, Leandra, is... Um, understanding how many people how many white people frankly white women specifically um <laughs> would feel the same way you do because i will uh, give you the benefit of the doubt and i will understand or take at face value that there was not intentionality in any of this. It's like, this was not rife racism that was leveled across your company. And it was, you know, that was just like the culture. And, um and that's, that's, that was just very negative in that respect. I'm not getting necessarily that feeling. And I think a lot of white people who work with, who have employees or work in a, in a company structure are very sort of shook by this time they feel very vulnerable they feel very exposed and i dare say maybe a lot of them feel that the the response is quite unfair um Mm -hmm. but before we get to the unfair part i want to focus on the vulnerability and the lack of an intentionality surrounding the, the culture that was created around you let's say or that you allowed to you know to sort of form around you In keeping along the lines of this introspection, what can you offer in that along those lines of your thinking that can say, that you can impart to others who found themselves, maybe in not as public a position as you are, but internally, they're fighting the same kind of battle. Like, oh my God, like I would never consider myself racist. Like, you know, I I have black friends or like, you know, I kind of moved through the world, like pretty, pretty uh, agreeable and kind to people. But if I take stock around me, the racial makeup is is really lacking. And my tribe mm-hmm. is really my white tribe that I went to boarding school with or went to university with or, you know, come up in the corporate culture with. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I just feel that a lot of people are in the same boat. And as a black person who is, let's say, a critic, and an observer and a chronicler of this kind of culture, I do feel empathy as well for this community. But I, I'm not necessarily the one to impart how to make them feel better. What can you offer in, in terms of that? At least that like you've, you know, you've been going through.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's really scary to be honest with yourself and to like push yourself to the edges of Uh, reality and truth. Um, I think it is an incredibly common response to being accused of racism to say, I'm not racist, Mm -hmm. but to actually sit with that notion that there is no way around the possibility that racial biases have formed your experience. And further that if you have not been aware of your privileges as a white person and the ways in which you have benefited at them, it means that you also don't exactly understand what expense that that benefiting comes from. And the expense is really what's dangerous, right? I mean, we're talking about another person's human rights here. And that's it's a lot to look at. And that's not an excuse, but I... I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you have the privilege of being able to ignore it, um, you should look, well, no, let me say this differently. A good way to go about, how, how do I say this? Sorry. Do you, do you like hear my white fragility, like <laughs> thing out through my teeth? <laughs> oh, so this is, But this is what I'm trying to say. Hold, let me, let me try and um, center and say this. Um I, so this is what I did, right? I had to look in the mirror and I said, have I ignored my white privilege? Am I ignoring my white privilege? Yes or no? Yes. I'm ignoring it. Or I'm not, I'm sorry, acknowledging. I'm not acknowledging my white privilege. Okay. And so what does that mean? What does that mean? That means that um, I'm not, I'm not being conscious of the fact that I'm benefiting from a system that is built to support me and that this system necessarily benefits one very specific or a very specific group of people and not another. And, and not only does it not benefit that other group, but it actually comes at their expense. Mm -hmm. And so by the transitive law of geometry, my not acknowledging my white privilege is racist, you know?
0: Right. But All all that you've expressed there, I mean, even, (laughs) you even had some, um, difficulty getting out those words. That kind of understanding, even to speak about white privilege, um, it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow for, you know, let's say for your average white woman. I mean, that term is just really starting to take hold and, um, and it's, it's a tenuous, (laughs) it's a tenuous hold that it's taking here because it's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable. I think you did—you know—you did, you know, you did a, a, a fair job there of putting that into words. But I think it's so removed. Like when your when your racial sort of worldview is challenged in this way, um, and it hits at the core, I just find mm-hmm. it to be something quite difficult for your average white person to to confront. So I can appreciate you taking this journey to get there.
2: Um. Well, thank you for saying that this is work that needs to be done. I mean, if you say that you believe in the cause of equitability and you want to contribute in some way, I feel really strongly that the first way to do that is to look yourself in the mirror and say, what am I so afraid of? Because, you know, after this whole thing started, this whole thing, after the, the great racial reckoning of summer 2020, um, that's a good title. I, I started Googling, Racism in America, you know, and trying to figure out how it started. I mean, my parents aren't from here, and it's actually, it's, well, that's a whole other topic. We can talk about that in another podcast episode. <laughs> but I started Googling racism in America, and how did racism start? And none of the answers were adequate because there's there's no real there, there was, there was no information on, on, on how racism started that felt like it actually satisfied the answer that I was looking for. And so when I started thinking about it, I was like, you know, I've been reading all of these, these, uh, reflective texts and a lot of, um, a lot of books by writers who subscribe to buddhism and i'm thinking about this concept that there are two that there are two emotions in the world right there is love and there is fear and every other feeling is derivative of those two emotions and so how did racism start it started out of scarcity mindset it started because of fear You know, Mm -hmm. white supremacy is a manifestation of someone believing that if another has power, it necessarily means they get less power. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a love mindset and you're able to think abundantly, you recognize that there is enough to go around for everyone. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, this was kind of the fallacy of the, the female founder is like, we were the minority and all of a sudden, all these women were in positions of power and, um, the, the sentiment was supposed to be abundant. There's enough to go around, right. you know, women, hel- women helping each other with their businesses. Like we don't need to be cagey. You have your business. I have mine. Like there's there, you know, you're going to do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. We're both going to make money. We're both going to support people. And, and, and that's it. Let's be friends. Why do we need to be so private about what we're building and what we're creating? Um, and when that, when that switch occurred, the sort of like indoctrination into the system occurred, it was deeply unsettling. It has been deeply unsettling from a public perspective.
1: Mm. Wow. It's interesting because a lot of what you talk about is actually the public projection of a of female founder. You know, it's, we're all in it together when actually, and that's an interesting dynamic in fashion generally that what is being projected in a public setting is very different to what happens behind the scenes so I I appreciate that and I think one of the things that I'm interested in is the machinations of this introspection because one of the things that you said in your newsletter and I I'm going to read this because I found it really interesting, is it would have been hard to see a lot of this clearly had it not been for the private conversations I've had with current and former employees who've been willing to honestly recount our relationship from their perspectives. I know it's not their responsibility and I'm grateful to them for their time and candor. The conversations have brought up a lot of feelings of shame, but have also reminded me of the value of connection. That's probably the thing that struck me Most when reading your newsletter, because I think that that right there, there seems to be some level of growth because I know that, you know, from my personal experience and experience of my peers, when it comes to the sort of founder CEO mentality is when you talk about race um, as a challenge that shame that it evokes usually gets misdirected to the person that is speaking the truths, right? So it becomes this mm-hmm. idea of you're shaming me or how dare you, or, you know, mm-hmm. some level of. Yeah, that defensive Exactly. And that ends up in some level of indictment. So I felt that your ability to not only have conversations with current and former employees but also identify the shame that you felt and then where that would take you was really interesting could you talk a bit more about the conversations that you had what you learned and also other elements that took place while you were being introspective
2: yeah just before I I get to that the one thing I want to say is that that experience yes that that is a very um reflective snippet of how some of this growth has occurred. And to the point about introspection and how that relates to a lot of this anti-racist work, there's something to be said about the fact that there's a lot of fear on social media right now because there's a tremendous amount of justified anger. And I think that in a lot of ways that um, it like it terrifies white people and there's there's no room to like to say that you're terrified as a white person because you've had all this time and you haven't done the work. So, you know, step aside, just move, move on, move on with your life. Do this crap in private. Like We've been here for generations and generations. We just want equality, you know?
1: Yeah. It gets into this weird space where I think call out culture and cancel culture. Like I actually am interested, maybe we could talk about this a bit later on, but I'm interested in how that even impacted the contents of your letter and your decision to move away because I think that is a huge fear but then also there is that criticism of centering oneself in a situation that isn't actually about you which has also been part of the criticism about you moving away some criticism about your letter that you you know largely centered yourself in this narrative So we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, which I would love to talk about also. Mm -hmm. But I'd also love to know before that what those conversations that I imagine they were really difficult and hard conversations to have and to hear how Mm -hmm. they kind of went, what you learned from it, and any other elements of introspection. Because I think that could be quite helpful for a lot of business leaders and white people in the industry who, you know, speak quite grandly about ideas of accountability and introspection, but don't they don't don't know what that actually means in terms of the the tactical elements and I do think speaking to the people whether it's former employees people who have the grievance I think that is a lot of the work to have those honest dialogues so I'd love to hear from you about what that looked like and what you learned from that
2: yeah um it It was really illuminating to hear about the experiences of my employees, of me, from their perspectives because to the point we were just making, I'd centered myself to such a degree of magnitude that it started to feel like, you know, gosh, how do I say this? I'm I'm really working through this like still right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally understand. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of confusing or it's kind of difficult to put into words because it's still muddy and in process. And I'm reticent to say that like I learned and, and I'm changing that I'm, that I've centered myself too much because like, it's, it's, it's pretty new learning and I'm, I'm like very much working on it. Um, and trying to figure out what the balance is of like when centering the experience actually contributes positively to the narrative and when it like totally negatively impacts it. But I guess, um, I guess it was just so important and like even kind of like freeing to be able to actually see these people's experiences of Man Repeller through their eyes without any judgment from me because I wasn't trying to defend myself. I just wanted to hear and listen to what Man Repeller had been like for them or what it is like for them. And in a lot of ways, it curiously took a lot of self-imposed pressure that I experienced on myself off of me because I was like, oh, I I didn't have to know all the answers and like tell you that everything was going to be fine. Like you, you just, you just wanted me to listen to you. Like you just wanted me to see you when you were talking and speaking, but, and I was too busy trying to, you know, what I thought was like protect you or I'm sorry, what I, what I was really doing was trying to put on a front that everything is okay. Mm. and You don't have to worry. And that actually made things worse because you were trying to have one conversation. You were bidding for connection right. and I was in a different lane, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's like when you, it's like when, when your feelings are hurt and you're like, I'm so sad and you're ready to talk about it. And the person you're talking to is like, don't be sad. Don't be sad. Don't be sad. Right. You know? <laughs> at best. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. At best. So that was really, really illuminating. And that is, something that's been tough to sit with because maybe I feel a lot of regret. Like I, I I wish I had been able to do that. I I care so deeply about everyone who's worked with me. And I, I think that if you're willing to sit down with a person and listen to their experience and like really hear the compassion that's inside of like truly every single one of us, um, it's hard not to want to to like help them see the, their, the best versions of themselves. And I'm disappointed that I wasn't able to do that in real time. You know?
0: Well, Leandra, you're, we're, we're talking a little bit more here about like almost HR after, you know, after the controversy, we're dealing with some personnel HR situation, but let me step back a little bit in terms of how, before you were able to have these conversations do you think that you were viewing because in many ways, I see you as very fashion you know your your mm-hmm. your style is is hyper fashion with a real capital f and I cannot help but to always sort of like the business of fashion does seep or the industry rather of fashion has to seep into this conversation. I'm wondering if your view on the fashion industry was Say different, radically different from your staff, and that's in terms of how you know who gets to participate in fashion, in terms of how it looked, who gets to wear it, how it was presented, all of those kind of things. Would you say that it was different than how your employee, I'd say, or some of your employees had viewed the the industry of fashion? Was that a was that like a cultural difference between you guys? I, I don't want to impose that on you, but I'm I'm, I'm wondering was that a discovery in your conversation?
2: No, that, that's a really good question and a really good point. I think so. And it hadn't occurred to me until you just asked. I think I had this very finite idea of what fashion with a capital F looks like and is. Um, but I, I also recognize that that's very different from style. And I think the people who came to Man Repeller were attracted to the, the freedom of expression through personal style. Um, and, and the, the two concepts got conflated very frequently, but yes, to answer your question, I think I probably, yes, I think our definitions of fashion were very different. That's a, that is a, a very good point And one that I'm, I'm going to, crack open.
0: Well, I, and I, I felt the need to, to raise it because I, I, I cannot, we cannot ignore just that, that vision, you know, that almost that fa- that fashion fantasy. We all live in many ways by our perception of this business Um, And it was a lot of it was formed when we were all much younger. And I don't I I, a lot of it was like sort of immutable, you know, it it didn't change over time. And I think a a lot of the state of fashion uh, participants were slapped across the face when they realized like, oh, my God what I was perpetuating was not at all positive and it was at the exclusion of many a group and it was elitist in nature and so on and so forth. There's just a lot that gets unpacked when you really start to dissect just how this industry is, is structured and who gets to participate and who's valued.
2: Yeah, it's really at odds with itself. It's very conflicting because on the one hand, it has this, it has this incredible ability to, to liberate the people at impact, you know, like fashion has always, fashion has always spoken for me when words failed, when I didn't have the words, I didn't have the language and I just needed to express. And therefore my relationship with it is so personal and meaningful because I, I really feel that it has been there for me when I've needed it. It's been there to hide me. It's been there to amplify me. And Uh, I think that's an incredible gift of expression and, and, you know, this, this sort of like interactive art to a degree. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, when you think about uh, the industry that exists around it, when you think about the business of expression, it just gets very, um, it gets very challenging to assume or not assume, but to, to reconcile the, the inconsistencies and the disparity of, you know, finding yourself becoming the most honest version of yourself. And also, um, like, what am I trying to say?
1: Well, cause a lot of what we're talking about is actually, it feels a little bit devoid or or shall I say removed from the psychology and the psychological impacts of what it is to work in fashion for different people so i think that when we think about that relationship we're almost excluding the other relationships that are really important like fostering true connection for people you know that think differently or that look different or that are different have from different walks of life but also fostering environments for true dialogue and true engagement and true connection in the spaces in which we engage with fashion, whether that's in the corporate settings, whether that's projected in advertising. So I think it's quite complicated, but I think a lot of what we're talking about in this moment feels a bit removed from all of that other psychological stuff that impacts other people.
2: Yeah, it's almost like when, when a hope industry... Per, still perpetuates so much like you know fear and self disgust and stuff like that there's this really uncomfortable tension that you don't want to look at but kind of have to i don't know what are your what are your reads on the the ways in which the industry fails us and supports us
1: um i think right now As it pertains specifically to introspection and how we move forward, I think one of my concerns is how that could work for many reasons, right? I think one is a lot of the way the system has been set up and the results of that is that we have a disproportionate amount of white and privileged people in this space. So when we say we're listening and we're learning and and all of that stuff, I'm, I'm often wondering... Who are you listening to? Who are you learning from? Right. Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of echo chambers and silos that are going on that I'm that's why I'm so fascinated to talk to you about like the machinations of introspection. And then, like we just touched on previously, introspection is also mapped out against cancel culture and call-out culture, where we're seeing a lot of performative action and language and you know, this idea of like accountability, but not really understanding what that means or developing roadmaps as to what that means or what that looks like it's kind of well align with this and that's it you know and, and that's the work and we, we talk about doing the work but what does that look like on an mm-hmm. individual level I think there's so much vagueness in this space largely architected because of call-out culture and you know even just in mm-hmm. your trying to really speak from an honest place You struggle sometimes and stumble on your words. And I wonder if that is because of how it will be received or if you say this instead of that or, you know, so I really wonder how call out culture and the environment that has just been set up over decades of, you know, white supremacy and fashion. I wonder if these are just roadblocks to getting to this deep place of introspection that's really needed. Um, and so that's why I was really interested to speak to you because I, that's my read, but it's not really solutions orientated. It's more of a, an observation, if anything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's there's definitely an element of fear on my end.
0: Well, I I mean, (laughs) I was speaking about the vulnerability, I was speaking of vulnerability before, I think, I do think that like literally a lot of of people are finding it's like a deer in a headlight situation, like, oh my God, I didn't see this, I didn't see this car coming, like it's, uh, and again, it's it's, uh, in many ways, and as a black person too, I've been living in a fog in some respects, not as it pertains to race in this business, but in other respects in this business. I just think that I give latitude, you know, and I, I've been speaking about quite a bit about that in this conversation. I, I give latitude for ignorance because I think that you know our culture has created spaces to make you very comfortable with with one's ignorance. And um, yeah. while myself and Henrietta, we're doing a podcast and we may be having, you know, private conversations with different people in this industry and so forth. And we have kept this conversation alive in many ways, though are private. This conversation has yeah. not been widely, widely out there in its raw, raw format as a black person. Again, like I have I can articulate this till the cows come home and I've been doing so for a very long time. But I do think for, for a lot of white people, they are really struck by this moment. And that's not to give a pause. That's not to give a pause. But I think as a Black person, I have to extend some level of compassion and certainly patience in having the white community come up to speed and start to, wait. well, not start, but understand quickly and start to act and start to do better upon that understanding so i have a you know while my while my criticism may come quite strongly i think the solutions that henrietta is speaking about after that introspection I don't know that it can come so easily. I think it upends mm-hmm. so much of how yeah. the ways that, you know, that we've lived. And let's be honest, Black people have also been complicit in that, too. Black people have been complicit in allowing white people to, pr- to propagate a lot of the stuff, a lot of the toxic work culture that they have done so. You know, a lot of Black people have stayed comfortable in their own position. Obviously, a lot of it deemed by the toxic culture, but they protected themselves in those environments. And ultimately, they are agents of change, and they could use their agency for change over time. And a lot of them met this moment and sort of coalesced with it. And subsequently, what did they say? Um strength in numbers and, and have been able to really, really, really stand up to this time. But again, from the white perspective, I could understand why they feel fragile and, um, and shook by this period. So I'm extending a bit of empathy to the community as they're being introspective and are attempting to learn. I, I, I really what, do you,
2: what do you think it's going to take to foster a level of honesty that allows these kinds of conversations to happen more regularly?
0: well staring racism directly in the the eye and calling it for what it is and not couching it in anything else really really doing that first and then i dare say vacating seats at the table like how can you Mm -hmm. how can more people be at the table if there's no space If there are no spaces to occupy yeah it's going to mean that some people um, some white people are going to have to step away to provide spaces for people of color. And yeah, that's going to be uncomfortable for some of them. A lot of them will push back. But again, this is what the fight is about. We have not had that Seat at that table and yeah I'm sorry it's not gonna it's gonna seem somewhat unfair to some but if we think about the history and the disenfranchisement of black people over hundreds of years, uh, again I'm those, those kind of cries I, I won't hear I won't hear so we have to be raw about it and you use some of that language in this conversation and I think that you know our colleagues and our peers um, should not be afraid of having these uncomfortable conversation and being raw in that effort, and then being radical to change. Mm-hmm. I, I it's, there's no there's no really easy way there's no really easy way ar- around this. Well, particularly particularly where, where white people are concerned, it's not going to be easy for them to sort of give up that seat. But if they're unwilling to do so, then they're willing to uphold systemic racism.
2: Well, you know what I think if if white people are able to like, honestly, if we, I should say, if we are able to honestly and consciously look ourselves in in the eye and say, I am racist. This is the way that I have upheld racism in my life. And this is how it has negatively impacted X, Y, and Z to like, really go there to take yourself to the edge of uh, your, your greatest fear, your greatest acknowledgement, and to say it with so much conviction, it doesn't have to be so hard to give up that seat because I think necessarily that when you start to be incredibly honest with yourself, you also start to see the places in it's not easy, but it's not, or I'm sorry, you said it wasn't easy, but I, I guess the point I'm making is that it doesn't have to be painful because when you're able to be so, so honest with yourself, you're also able to see the places in your life where you're not necessarily following your truth. You're kind of doing what you think uh what you think you should do or you're living this like projected life you think you should live. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I guess I've just been thinking about that a lot in like the examination of of my own racism and privilege is like but um I guess I've just noticed like the areas in my life where I've made decisions in the past that have become like habitual it's almost like they've become this like furniture on the shelf of Leandra. You know what I mean? Mm. These like knickknacks on the shelf of Leandra. And I'm like, this knack, this knickknack goes there and like, that's one part of my character and this knickknack goes there and it's another part of my personality. And like through a lot of this like excavation, I'm like, I don't want that knickknack anymore, but it's, it's like, if I take it off, then what does that mean for the rest of the tableau and how all of these things connect with each other?
1: You know, that's a really great analogy. It really is actually. And I think, the, I think the work is possible. I think we're able to get there to really engage in deep conversations that shift perspectives and excavate all of the, the challenges and problems that have got us to where we are. I know that there is goodwill there, particularly in a space of fashion where there is a community, a large community element and a connection piece to it. I think my challenge is what is the impetus for that? What what makes this more of a proactive move because it seems that we're in this weird space with call out and cancel culture where on one hand, everyone's like, it's hugely problematic. And like, this is why people don't want to say shit. And it's really toxic. But then it's like, without it, no one is out here proactively being like, do you know what, guys? this is a problem and I'm going to do this work. And so for me, I'm wondering what happens with introspection and doing the work and and all of this road mapping and goodwill and good gestures and and rebuilding Mm -hmm. systems happens just without the fallout, without the calling out. That to me is more where I wonder how we'll get to in a way that doesn't require you to be shaken to your core and that just makes it a bit more of a... Check up in the way that we do these things, you know, like we don't have to convince you to do the strategy that gets you a ton more traffic or social following or make a 10% increase in revenue. Those things, we're actively searching for those strategies and those solutions, right? Any CEO or mm-hmm. business leader is like, how are we proactively being better from a business standpoint? Or if sustainability is a priority, how are we proactively making strides and moves in those corridors? Yes, everyone's saying that they're doing this as it pertains to the racial fallout, but we've already seen that things are going back to normal. But it's also a psychological challenge because to your earlier point, it's, well, I'm not racist. I I didn't do that. I've got a black dentist, you know, or like centering yourself or, you know, there are all of these kind of defense mechanisms put in place versus having, because this is, it's so hard. You said at the end of your newsletter, it's messy and it's messy and it's mm-hmm. painful and it's hard to hold a mirror up to yourself because this goes beyond the business strategy and, and, and a professional setting. You're forced to reckon with your own being, you know, how you were raised, what you think that impacts how you, how you've been yeah. raising your kids, what kind of partner you are, what kind of friend you've been, how you contribute to mm-hmm. society in the world. These are huge questions that one has to ask themselves when they talk about What has their role been in upholding white supremacy in fashion? So for me, it's more of the proactive piece. I'm less worried about people doing the work because I I actually am optimistic we'll get there. And and it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, like, we're having this conversation. Would we have had this conversation six months ago? You know, like, let's say I heard a rumor that, you know, some employees were like, God, Leandra's, like, hella problematic. And I reached out to you and was like, so, you know, would we be having that conversation? I strongly doubt that, you know, so... Those are the things that I think about when it comes to these challenges of how we move forward, because it's also met with cancel culture where when we ask for progress, we're simultaneously asking for perfection. So people are very much like, okay, what have these 10 other brands said? And we'll do that. That's how the black square and the we're listening, we're learning and all of these things that have become tropes in this movement already. We've already got things that just feel very ubiquitous, but is that, because we're worried that if we put a step wrong or do something you know deviate from the norm we're subject to getting cancelled, or you know so it becomes a bit more convoluted when you really throw in the the thing that is the impetus for the introspection, which is council culture
0: and i I'll, I'll add something to that sort of um a, an addendum to what was mentioned earlier um, why are why are so many Female, um, business leaders in fashion, why are they the ones being called on, you know, for all of this introspection? There seems to be like some imbalance in the number of female leaders that are being called out. And granted, of course, there, you know, there would be more female leaders in fashion, but I don't see as much male business leaders in this space that are being called out. Just an observation I thought I would just mention there. Why are, why is such a bulk of female being um, being asked to, you know, to sort of clean up the workplace and do better. Where where are the males in fashion in this in this conversation? Just a, just as an aside, not necessarily for you, Leandra, to pick up on, but just so I thought I would mention that. <laughs>
1: but I think that's a big part because the face of this new wave of feminism in business and this idea of equity and inclusion has been from white females. When you look at all of the brands that and platforms that espouse inclusive fashion or feminism they're all white females so I think those are always the ones with the biggest target on their back that when you are doing when you're saying and espousing something that's so counter to then I guess what's happening behind the scenes that would be my take well yeah
2: yeah I think that goes back to the point that we'd made earlier about the fall of the girl boss and and what the promise of the female founder was and how it, how some ultimately were not able to deliver to this, to the degree that they (laughs) wanted or that we wanted. Um, but I, I, also, is, is it just, are women more comfortable being vulnerable? Like, do we, do we open ourselves up to a level of vulnerability that is not as evident I I don't want to stereotype here, but I mean, I I certainly know that's true for me. Like sometimes when I think about the strongest people in my life, I have this vision of them like running on a track and people are throwing stuff at them, like big old printers and tax (laughs) machines and like filing cabinets and they just keep running, you know, like they, they don't even know that those things are being thrown at them. And then I think about myself and I'm on the same track and I'm literally trying to catch everything that's being thrown at me.
1: I was actually just talking about this this morning with my friend Lola. We were talking about Megan the Stallion, uh, as everyone is. And so we were talking about the public's ability to be um, more accepting of female vulnerability, but particularly white female vulnerability and not so much black female vulnerability. So I think therein also lies an imbalance whereby that is a a piece of the reckoning, you know?
0: wow i
1: I would love to can you say more about that um so I think when you talk about this female founder, this girl boss, this I'm so sorry mm-hmm. and you know here's my Instagram post and this is my level of vulnerability um because I've been called out as being a huge part of the problem that tends to be yeah. really well received whereas when you look at the way that a lot of Black women in the industry have been treated and a lot of the grievances, um, a lot isn't atoned for, I think, because that vulnerability hasn't really been... Is not Hasn't accepted. been accepted or even recognised, right? Because you see a lot of, she's really problematic and, like, she's divisive or she's angry. A lot of those racial tropes come into play. But then it also becomes this thing of, like, well... So-and-so said that they're sorry. So it, isn't that enough? Like, why are you still talking about it? It becomes this thing of, of a disparity between the perception of one's vulnerability over another. To the Megan uh-huh. The Stallion point, we saw how she was mocked She had to prove her wounds. She had to protect her aggressor. There were all of these things that didn't allow her to be vulnerable. And then Mm. there's also that trope of like the strong black female of like, she's got this. She's fine. It didn't even hurt. We see that with medical stats about black women not being believed that they're in pain, not being administered medication. Um, more so than white women, and so I think that there is this disparity on how vulnerability has been perceived and and I know this from personal experience. there is very much something in there has been examples of my pain or my vulnerability that wasn't even recognized and was seen as problematic versus almost all of my white counterparts, you know when you 're kind of cute and blonde and you get teary eyed regardless of what it's about, it very much is like there's a problem here versus being dramatic and being too much. And, you know, so I think that disparity has also caused a lot of hurt, which a lot of people want atonement for, you know, white mm-hmm. people to mm-hmm. even recognize just even the nuance in that detail of of even seeing the pain in the first place. Because even when we talk about this reckoning, it becomes this thing of like, oh well many people have told me that I'm problematic. So let me look into that. But it was it wasn't even enough Mm. when said black person said that in the first place or or brought that up to HR or acted in a way that was like, wait, are you okay?" So I think that even within that, the accountability piece feels really Mm -hmm. in ways triggering because it's like now that you've been called out on social media by other people who are not the people even with the grievance, it becomes something to look at and identify versus you know, so even then when we talk about these one-on-one conversations, that's why I was interested that you went back and you spoke to a lot of your former employees who had the issues. I'm, I'm interested in how you mm-hmm. saw them and how you heard them and how it was different retrospectively than, than in real time.
2: Yeah. I, now that you put it that way, I think initially I was really, um, I couldn't understand why no one had felt comfortable calling me out internally at Man Repeller. Like right after I'd stepped down, there was definitely a level of anger of like, why why is this how this had to happen? Like why, why couldn't I have had this conversation with the members of my team earlier? And as I was having these conversations, I was like, I, I must have, I clearly fostered an environment that didn't make people feel comfortable expressing their opinions and expressing their thoughts and ideas. It, it became a culture of you know, let's, let's I guess, manage her, also, you know? Who are you, but
1: also, who are you talking about? Because I think that's what we talk about when we talk about fostering environments. Yes, maybe for some people. And, you know, these experiences are often compounded where you have to get along to get along. You know that going to HR isn't going to serve you well at all. You know that it might hinder your upward mobility to get promoted. Yeah. It might impact your relationship with your boss or, your you know, the editor-in-chief or whatever. So a lot of these experiences are often compounded they're often a series of microaggressions that individually Mm -hmm. independently you might not say something but as they compound it does kind of foster that frustration and then when that's expressed at the point at which you feel like you need to say something or do something and I that's what I mean about the the vulnerability or or the full range of emotion not being um, seen or accepted or being handled differently versus, you know, how that's received of our white counterparts.
2: Yeah, the the conversations that I had were with white and black employees because I think there were grievances in both directions for many reasons. And the the criticism on my leadership was, uh, I think, more tied to my incapacity to not. I think it, it was more tied to um, definitely the classism and the favoritism and. Yeah, the my my perception or my interpretation or takeaway from the conversations that I'd had was really tied to my my inability to listen. That's mm. that's really what it's felt like and that's that's really what has become my work, you know, and and it was really important to recognize that in order to listen, you necessarily have to suspend your own experience to understand the experience of another. That doesn't mean that you have to like take on their experience because that's not healthy either. Um, but particularly if you have, uh, if you have the tendency of like going kind of shapeless and like struggle with confidence anyway which frankly
1: I do um but that's an interesting piece to this as well though I think one's own insecurities is is interesting I guess to wrap up I'd love to know now that you have done now that you're on the road to retrospection should we say I'm not going to say it's a completed Mm -hmm. process what are you most excited about like how are you planning to show up now in you know as it pertains to man capella and your career like how are you planning to show up now that you know a bit more
2: I'm I'm really really eager and this is going to be this is a long road but I'm really eager to learn how to truly lead you know I, I think there are different kinds of leaders in the world and um you know leading doesn't necessarily have to mean I I think I've had this like definition or perception in my head of what it means to be a leader. Um, And to me that was always like having all the answers and, and providing comfort and, and like solutions to everybody in the room. And I'm, I'm learning now and it's frankly quite inspiring and, and energizing to think that like, actual leadership is really the capacity to look at another person and see them. It's to listen to what they're telling you. And it's to work together to come to a solution because you're, you are frankly in it together. Um, And so I'm really, I'm really eager to continue this work of suspending my own experience of like, you know, feeling more disciplined about or developing the, the discipline to to stop centering my experience as frequently as I do and um really to just start like truly, truly supporting other people. I, I'm I don't know I don't know how else to say it.
0: That, well that's that says a lot, Leonja. That truly says a lot. I mean you you're you're showing commitment to doing more work and continuing to do that work. And let's be honest, I mean, that's the best we can ask of any participant in this industry, in this game, for sure. So, um, so yeah, that's certainly appreciated. And um, I think on that note... Um Leandra, thank you so much for joining us. I know that you have you know you have been limited in speaking about this subject, so I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today about this and surely it's been illuminating for me and uh, and hopefully for Henrietta as well and uh, I, I hope we can speak to you in the future in this ongoing work that we're all doing.
2: yeah, I hope that I was able to deliver what you hoped I could when you reached out to me. I think i d- I did not. I didn't personally even realize the extent to which I'm still so raw. Um, And and I think that probably showed in our conversation in a few different places. But like, there's there's definitely still a lot of insecurity and fear on my part. And I I heard that come out in a few places, as I'm sure you did too. So I hope that I was able to
1: deliver on... Yeah, the mission ultimately was to have an honest dialogue. And that really was it. We wanted to... Meet you where you are, and so had no expectations as to what you would deliver. So we just really appreciate you being super candid with us on our
0: platform. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leandra. Yeah,
1: thank you
2: of both course. for having me.
0: And you have a great weekend.
2: Okay, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye. for
1: something